Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Little known fact about my guest today, in his stand-up, he calls himself the least interesting person in his family. But what his one-man show, Just For Us, has taught us is that he's actually the most interesting person we want to know. He grew up modern Orthodox in Boston, and Judaism is a big part of his work as a stand-up, an actor, and a storyteller. And Just For Us is a show that has really taken the stage by storm. Everyone in the theater community now wants to claim that he is one of ours, as does the stand-up community, the acting community. It's really something to behold. This extraordinary writer and stand-up and performer is um, a voice that will be telling stories that we want to listen to for many years to come. Welcome the extraordinary Alex Edelman to the podcast. A-OK. everyone. My guest today is actor, writer, and stand-up comedian Alexander Edelman. His one-man show, Just For Us, that he is currently performing is truly one of the greatest pieces of theater I have ever seen. It focuses on a night where he crashes a meeting of white nationalists in Queens. This show is a New York Times critic's pick. Uh, Alex has also, by the way, performed his stand-up comedy all over the world, and I am so pleased to have him on the podcast today. Welcome, Alex. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's so nice. Um, thank you. It's, so excited to be here. Well, it's just incredible, and you have so much going on right now, so thank you for stopping by my podcast. Um, just to start, for people who haven't been in the places that the show Just For Us has played... Um, and until we can all see it on HBO or Netflix or whoever fights over you and gets it, um, can you give a short, truncated version of what it's about so that then we can deep dive into the story of you, your life, and how I found myself at a theater watching you the other night? Okay. Um, uh, here it goes. Jew goes to a meeting of um, uh, people that he would call white nationalists and... Um, it uses that story as a framework to examine his own Judaism in a place that is almost as far removed as he can possibly uh, get from a Jewish environment. 
So from yeshiva to white nationalist meeting, like yes. there's there's an arc. Yes, absolutely. That's a, I think that's a good way. Of, that's definitely a good way of putting it. Absolutely. You know, I ask people a lot what the show is about. And some people say empathy. Some people say assimilation. Um, people who aren't Jewish but understand theater and comedy have a really, you know, wonderful, distinct reaction to it, and they come from more of a craft from from a craft perspective. But yeah, the the show is, I think, at heart about uh, trying to fit in and what that means and what that costs us. So you share so much of yourself in the show. Part of what's so amazing, it's a story about this one night in your life, but you also end up being so generous in terms of sharing so much about your own story, your family's story, whether they like it or not. I assume they're used to it at this point. Um, they like it. They're comfortable with it. Okay. Um, can you literally just walk me through how did Just For Us come to be? I've been a big fan of Mike Birbiglia since forever. And so I mentioned to Birbiglia, I went to go see Birbiglia show the new one for the second time, which is at the Amundsen. And this is 2019 now. I'm writing on a television show in Los Angeles and not having a very good time, but but a really uh, special experience. But so in, in any case, I went to go see the new one at the Amundsen in LA and Birbiglia and I were walking to Grand Central Market for a bite to eat. And he said, I hear you have a solo show. And I said, oh, yeah, my last show. <laughs> this is so silly to me now. I said, yeah, my last show. It's over. And he, he said, what's the show? And I said, ah, I went to this meeting of white nationalists in Queens. He went, that's not your last show. And in parentheses, I can always hear him thinking, you idiot. He went, that's not your last show. That's your next show. And then in the same conversation, also, I had just done Conan. And I did a joke that, that he said, you know, that joke didn't really make me laugh, but I've been thinking a lot about it which is to hear from uh, one of your favorite comedians, like a really interesting thing. And it wasn't an insult. It was like a really nice thing to, he's a great guy, Birbiglia. In any case, Birbiglia uh, said, why don't I put the show up for one night in New York at the Lortel? And if it's any good, then, you know, you have, if it's any good, then maybe we'll do something. And if it's not any, if it's not good, then you at least get to say for one night that you put your show up off Broadway. And the, the show is already done. You know, the show's already done something abroad, but it'd be nice to do it here for a night. So I invited Can everybody. Can you something? Okay, go ahead. But I'm going to sidebar for one second. It, it's not nothing for someone to perform on Conan or Stephen Colbert or any of these late night shows that we all grow up watching. So, not at all. So how, like, how did that all, you're, you're known in those circles as someone who gets to play in that arena. So how did, like, what was the first one of those that you did? I mean, I was a, I was a jobbing comedian for a long time. Like I banged my head against the, against uh, the wall of comedy clubs for years, years and years. And I mean, I went to NYU, but I was in love with it long before. And, you know, I'm, I'm the type of person who's been very lucky with mentors uh-huh. teachers and advocates. And I've had tremendous moments of teaching and advocacy and mentorship from other people on my behalf. And so I think some of that is because I think teachers see that I'm committed to the discipline, but also there are some really good people in comedy and theater. There are, when I was in college, for instance, you know, I don't think I've ever told this story in any sort of public forum before, but 
I grew up a huge, huge fan of the West Wing. Big fan. And then, you know, the show is uh, in a way that still sticks with me. And I loved, I loved the West Wing. And I had, you know, sort of very, uh, you know, unconventional, like Bill Irwin, the clown was big for me. Like there are a lot of things that are big for me. Like if we do a section on what was big for me, I think it'd be like, that's a weird collection. But anyway, I was in college and I was coming out of a comedy club and Bradley Whitford was standing outside on the sidewalk smoking a cigarette. And I asked him for the time and he looked up and I went, oh my God, you're Bradley Whitford. And he was like, oh yeah, I'm a little embarrassed. He caught me smoking a cigarette. Maybe he was quitting or something. I don't know why he said that. It was then, the only night ever that he had a cigarette. Yeah, it's the only night it. Bradley Whitford ever had a cigarette. And, uh, and he said to me, and I said, hey, can I buy you a drink? He's like, I'll buy you a drink. And, you know, basically I was like, what's it like? Because I was a college student. It's like, what's it like being, you know, like an actor, like an entertainer, like a writer, direct, you know, like, and he talked to me. It was 9 or 9.30 when we walked into this bar and we walked out like 2.15 a.m. I remember where we sat. I remember the bar. And occasionally, very he's occasionally. He's the best storyteller on the planet. I just, I couldn't believe how generous he was. Yeah. And that was one. And by the way, I'm not friends with Bradley Whitford in a way that means I see him all the time. He gave me his number. He said, yeah. call me if you ever need anything. Wrote on a piece of paper, stole the piece of paper. And uh, then when I started, I got a lucky break in 2014. Uh, I won an award in Scotland that, that meant I could go full-time as a comedian. And people, the agents started, you know, coming around. And I called Brad. He wrote Brad on the paper. I called Brad and I was like, Brad, I have some questions. And he answered all my questions very patiently. And like I have people, I've had moments in my life like that, inside of comedy, outside of comedy, in other areas of my life that I'm really interested in. So the way you get on Conan and the way that you start performing is that people take an interest in you. And we live in a world that's, you know, heavily freighted with um, gatekeepers, but you know, the job is a fairly independent one. And people, if you set out a stall that's of a quality, people sometimes come and find you. And there are people that JP Buck, who's the booker for Conan, I don't know what he's up to now, but you know, he kind of took a shot on me and not my, and not my, I don't have to guess at this. I was really irritating. You know, I was like a really irritating young person who was always around and just didn't quite have the goods yet, but really loved it. And so it was, it was pretty easy for some folks to, you know, dismiss me. But there were other folks who have really, who really uh, took to me. And I've, found, by the way, I'm finding that right now on my show. There's a woman named Dory Berenstein who's. I love become, Dory. She's a good friend of mine. She's wait. Has she been on the podcast recently? She's been on my podcast. Yeah, that's right. Your pod. That's what I meant. Yes. And yes, yes, yes. Dory is a really. Dory has been really, really a, has come and given great advice. Jeffrey Seller. Um, Gordon Greenberg, uh, Benj Pasek is one of my, is like, been like an older brother. And like, I'm finding all these wonderful people in Tommy Kale, who's like one of my favorite people, like they've come and offered good advice and they occasionally check in. And I have this really amazing group of people, um, that, let me uh, ask you, I did this play called my name is Asher Lev and uh, I don't you know are, if you're you familiar with Ryan Potok's work, but okay, you know, can I fess up to something? It's my favorite book from childhood, and the book is about a young Hasidic kid who wants to be an artist. And I know that sounds really boring, but it's—I uh, mean, that's anything more than that kind of spoils the book. But he exists in this world uh, where the 
where the rabbi is closer to the pope than pulpit clergy. And so the rabbi kind of guides the, the rabbi is, you know, one third uh, Vito Corleone and two thirds Dumbledore, you know, like in this, uh, and, and he does this really, he has this really wonderful, uh, wonderful manner about him, the, the rabbi, and he got the rabbi and he guides Usher through this and a lot of tumultuous stuff happens. And it's very plot heavy for a book that's so internal, but, but no, my family in, in the book, his family is very resistant to his artistic impulses. My family always encouraged me to do stuff that I loved. Always. They, they, uh, you know, the, this is the way immigration goes, right? The first generation digs ditches and then the second generation, so the, the second generation can become doctors and lawyers so that their children can become uh, horrific uh, drug-addled DJs, like that's how this goes, right? Like you're like that's the that's the arc of three generations, right? Like you you start working very hard, and then you achieve the American dream of the middle class, and then your kid squanders it in a loft somewhere. Like that is the so my I think my family very much. My grandfather was an engineer who grew up in a graveyard in Staten Island, and in my and raised four boys, uh, you know doctor and engineer, my father, uh, lawyer, lawyer, uh, you know, a financial consultant. And those, those were my, those are my uncles and I'm a stand-up comedian, but my parents always said like, do something that, uh, makes you happy. Don't like trap yourself behind a desk. And from a very young age, I, you know, when I was 14, I got a job working at the Boston Red Sox. I wrote the kids newsletter for the Red Sox and I was obsessed with baseball and worked in baseball from time I was 14 until the time I was 22. And, and I, I go back occasionally to dip my toe in and help out old friends. And occasionally I'll write stuff for different teams or something like that. But like, it but is it a mean that you had to work on Shabbat, right? I would walk to the park if I had to do something on Shabbos and I wore a yarmulke and I was uh, very conscious of the holidays. And I would, you know, at sundown on Friday, I would race home from, from work and it was like a real uh, – I was lucky that I lived within walking distance of Fenway Park. Otherwise, I wouldn't. And on Shabbos, I'd walk to Fenway. I would go to all the the games. But it was uh, – but yeah, I live a little bit on a tightrope between a religious lifestyle and a lifestyle that's a bit more secular. Still. And it's not, still. It's not yeah. an – you know, like I'm not totally secular. Like I wear a yarmulke. I wear to fill in in the mornings the, the leather straps that people are, you know – familiar i keep a semblance of kosher my home is my home is strictly kosher i you know there are aspects of judaism that are important to me and there are aspects of judaism that aren't important like there the funny thing is i strictly adhere to certain minute details of judaism but i also believe that like patrilineal jews are jews like you know what i mean like there are sects of judaism that so like i am not in it's hard for me like my Judaism is, um, there's some rigor in it, but it's non-traditional. So it's, it can be a tough, uh, it can be a tough thing. Yeah. If that makes sense. So of course, I think it's, you know, religion in a modern world is a complicated thing. Um, you talk about in, in both the show and in, uh, all of, I mean, there's just tremendous press and, and ways to sort of get to know you. You've been doing a lot of incredible interviews. Um, you talk about this list, this Twitter list, that in some ways was was 
part of the show and a catalyst and also it was just a lived experience. Can you talk about the list and what that was? Is that a real thing? Yeah, the list is a real thing. So what's the list? I have a list of online anti-Semites that actually I've been bad about keeping updated. Although it doesn't take long to repopulate it because a lot of these guys get suspended. But So because um, you're openly Jewish on Twitter, it attracts uh, attention from a group of people that you have, uh, once they interact with you in a really anti-Semitic way, you put their names on a list. I add, them, I add their handles to a Twitter list, which is um, it's actually a lot of fun. Or it was actually a lot of fun because it was a good way of you know, keeping track of them. And, um, and it's sort of, sort of my entree point into, there are other ways to keep track of online anti-Semites or to be in, I'm on two or three, I'd say two, actually. There are two social media sites that I roughly characterize as anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. Um, one of which is, actually, I won't say, I won't say, because I don't want to be, I don't want to be sussed out. And uh, it's a really important part of like, you know, my process, I might write a book about this or something like that. So like, it's a very, uh, I don't know, it's weird. But like, yeah, I have this list of, of anti-Semites. I used to go digging for anti-Semitism. And now I think in, a, in the middle of the pandemic, I kind of stopped. I think like things became so viscerally unpleasant in other areas that it stopped the, the fascination with the viscerally unpleasant stopped holding the well, you were so fascinated by the viscerally, viscerally unpleasant that you went to Queens to to interact with them. Yeah. And I guess um, one thing I've wanted to know is, has anyone from that evening come to see your show or does any, have they, because you know. weren't wearing a mask, you know, when you were no. at that meeting um, and they figured out who you were. So no one from that night has contacted you. No. And also okay. I wouldn't know. And and I didn't know it was a story for months. Right. So like, or for like two months. So like, I don't, sometimes people are like, sometimes press people are like, let's go back to the building. I was like, I don't know how to find it. Like, you know, I've deleted the, I, I actually found my way there via an app that wasn't Twitter. Although I don't, you know, I say Twitter in the show, but that's because I don't want to explain additional apps. Got but it. like, uh, I'm not on that app anymore. I don't want like, and so I used to have this nightmare where, you know, like not a literal nightmare, but I used to have a nightmare where someone would stand up in the show and be like, excuse me, fuck, you know, like you're mischaracterizing our views. Yes. But then my, yes. my friends were like, you think someone's going to come and be like, excuse me, you're misrepresenting. I'm a Nazi, you're, but you're misrepresenting how, uh, you know. Me. I have, I, sir, I need you to stop. Um, but that you- is, but it is a really like, uh, it is a really, you know, it was a fascinating thing but also like i've had a bunch of convert you know the show is is you know is almost entirely informed by that like that narrative is almost entirely informed by that but there are some talking points in the show or bits in the show that are informed with countless other conversations that i've had with people in bars in in like not that deep brooklyn there's a bar near a white castle in Brooklyn that is frequented by folks who would not characterize themselves as white nationalists, but I think hold white nationalist views. I've had chats in that bar. Um, I've chats with my friends. Sometimes, you know, how many people, like, let's be real. How many people have we spoken to 
that are really good people and, and, and honest people and, and occasionally admits to agreeing with a talking point that you might hear on Tucker Carlson. Like, and there are people who are broadly, who would broadly consider themselves Democrats. There are talking points that I hear and I won't disclose, you know, and I, I struggle with this in the show and there's a little bit of this in the show. There are some things that I wouldn't say in public that I, um, that I feel politically. And I've had those in a big part of my upbringing, paradoxically, the Talmudic upbringing, is being able to sit in a room and have conversations where people, you know, where I figure out how I feel mm-hmm. and where I sharpen my knife a little bit. And it, sometimes it drives my girlfriend crazy. She'll be like, you don't have to argue all of the time. And I've, you know, and I've stopped for the most part. But the reason my friends like David are, are people that I cherish is because partially sometimes I'll go, well, I know I feel this, but tell me why I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. And, you know, David is a Democrat, a dyed-in-the-wool, you know, Democrat who has done a lot of good work for Democrat candidates, a political consultant. But occasionally I'll say, like, David, I feel this, like, hardcore Democrat thing. Can you argue from the other side for a moment? And he can. Mm-hmm. And, like, we, you know, sometimes we'll have a lunch where I'll be like, David, I feel this thing. I know I feel Democrat about it, but I think I'd like to take the Republican side for a second. Can you, like, argue? And, like, it, by the way, that is a privileged position. Not everyone has the – like, that is something that I can do as a person who presents as a, you know, straight white male, even though I'm not confident or concrete about, you know, any of those things. Uh, like, that is a that is a privileged position. Not everyone wants to do the emotional labor figuring out whether or not they like the Olympics. You know what I mean? Like, that's not a – that's not something that everyone has the time or the um, energy or patience or you know position in in a, you know in in a hierarchical society to do. So so you know like those uh, now I've meandered, but I'm saying like those those things those conversations with people who have different opinions are uh, very important to me. And I'm not characterizing those white nationalists as people with different opinions and having a fun intellectual disagreement with. I'm just saying- No, no, no. We're not comparing David Burstein to- I I get it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, Your girlfriend, do you say out loud who she is? Sure. I mean, she's a little bit famous also. Yeah. She's on a show called Hacks. Her name's Anna Einbinder. She's a delight. And, yes. uh, yeah, I mean, it's great. I live with a wonderful comedian. She's also a really phenomenal comedian. And, um, and yeah, I really so enjoy Will it. Will Swenson was on the show, and he's married to Audra McDonald, and they harmonize a lot together and just have the oh, most wow. beautiful voices. And I was like, oh, two of the greatest, like, voices that are alive right now get to live together and harmonize. And so do the two of you so that's sort of the singing couple thing or the you know some people write together so two uh people who are really invested in writing and comedy and storytelling live together do you do bits like when people come over they're like just entertained by the two of your banter i mean i'll say that <laughs> we're really funny <laughs> i'll say that um she really sharpens my knife. I guess, like I said, you know, I really like, I need people to sharpen my knife in terms of in every way. I mean, I want to, uh, 
I'm happy to talk about my relationship. There are some things I've like, I've never talked about on stage a ton, although maybe that's like the next frontier for me. My comedy mm-hmm. is personal, but I'm weirdly like yeah. protective of certain things. Not, I'm not being cagey here and I also don't uh, know exactly what I'm saying, but I'll say that like one of the wonderful things about my relationship is that, you know, I, I just have this really nice, uh, I have this really nice partner who really understands comedy. And so we have lots of, uh, we have lots of arguments about comedy. We have lots of discussions about comedy. She's had a huge impact on the show in terms of, you know, what she likes and doesn't like. Um, no one's had a bigger impact than Adam and Berbiglia and Berbiglia's director, Seth Barish, but there are a million people who are really big parts of it. And my girlfriend, Hannah, is... Sorry, I am mean, emotional. She's like a really wonderful part of my life and a really nice um, pocket of calm in a very chaotic job. And she understands that I have to travel and, you know, we see each other um, as much as we can. And we had some, and she was the, she was the hugest silver lining of the pandemic. You know, like I, uh, I got to spend all this time with this person in a way that I don't know that I would have been able to if I was, you know, constantly moving around trying to do shows. So, uh, yeah, I have a really wonderful time and yes, we run bits by each other, but more importantly, the secret to being a great, there's actually only two secrets to being a really great comedian. There are only two. Um, first is that you have to have the highest possible standards. And you need to know those standards uh, by seeing lots of comedy and theater and other stuff. And then you need to hit those standards. So all you need to do is what it takes to be the best. The, the, the first secret is you need to know what it means uh, to be the best. And then the second is you need to do it. So those are the two secrets. All you need to do to be the best comedian is figure out what it means to be the best comedian and then become the best comedian. That is your master class. That's my master class. It's 30 seconds. It fits in a, it fits in a fucking tweet. But, um, but you know what the fun, like in all seriousness, uh, it is really, I think the reason I, if there are people who think I'm good at comedy, it's because I've had great role models. Some of them are friends. Some of them are people I've never met, but like, uh, Steve Martin, Jerry Seinfeld's my girlfriend. Like my girlfriend is a really great role model. And sometimes I'll tell a joke and she'll be like, I don't like that. And I'm like, okay, I won't, you know, I won't do it. Sometimes she's like, I don't like that. I'm like, well, I'm going to do it. And she's like, well, then tell me why. Uh, Cause she's a different person. There's different standards, but like, yeah, she, so we write bits together, but more than anything else, we keep each other honest. And I have people Every comic needs someone to keep them honest. I think it's really hard for famous for a non for a non comedic comedic person to keep you like. What do you mean? Oh my god! You need someone who can who can tell you something shit. Okay, you to need, keep you, you honest, like that's not that work is not good. Or are you saying in every aspect of your life? Yeah, you need someone to tell you that work is not good, especially once you start getting a claim for being who you are as opposed to what you're doing. Huh. Famous comedians need someone to tell them that's not good. I've done that for a few comedians, actually. Some of, you know, there's a comic named uh, Jack Whitehall. And uh, the only reason I'm mentioning him is because he has a remarkable radar for what is and isn't good, actually. And so, like, I, he, he had me work with him on a show. And, uh, a lot of, and some people were like, oh, clearly Alex rode on the show. But really what I did was sit there and Jack was like, is this good? Because, like, I think it's hard for some comics to be like, 
this is good or this is and by the way the reason i'm mentioning jack is because it was like the easiest best process he really knows what is and isn't good and and i never had to fight him on anything i'd be like i don't like this he's like yeah i don't like you know like it's a it's really but yeah famous comics need someone I'm not famous, but famous comics and non-famous comedians alike, but it's harder for famous comedians to find them because they're surrounded by so many sick and fancy yes men and losers. Like, uh, you, they need someone to tell them, like, hey, this is really bad. There are writers who are too big and too famous to write well anymore because they're, they always get their way. So they can push through anything and, you know. Alex, I'm talking to you at this crazy moment in your life where – Every, you know, I came to your show because Sarah Jessica Parker was like, you have to go see this show, right? And when you oh named all these people um, that have become mentors, as you say, or, or people you admired who are checking in on you from Dory to Tommy to, you know, these are, these are the who's who of, of the, of, of the theater community, the television community, the film community at large, right? Stephen Colbert, you're on my podcast today, but Stephen Colbert is going to host you at the 92nd Street Y. How are you feeling in this moment? Um, God, this is such a, it's, here's the, the question. I don't know if I want to answer this honestly, but I'm, 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 uh, I'm nervous. Uh, I'm excited gratified um i hope it continues i hope people come see the show uh i hope people continue to come see i'm very proud of the show you know i know it sounds silly like i know it's also maybe not even what you're asking but like very proud of this piece of work that takes a long time to get comedy together this is 85 minutes of what you know i think is my best foot forward and it's like some comedians you know wind up getting famous because they wind up on a sitcom, like a multi-camera sitcom or something. Mm-hmm. And then they, they, they go abroad and it's, you know, like, and it's a, it's touch and go as to whether or not they'll have longevity. Like Aziz Ansari got famous because not because of his standup, he got famous for other stuff for his acting. And it just turns out that he was a capable standup, a very capable standup and, you know, made his bones that way. And, and, you know, but for every Aziz or Patton Oswalt who got famous from King of Queens, but really was a tremendous stellar stand-up comedian, uh, one of the best on two legs, there are a million guys who I won't name but can think of who got a gig on a sitcom at the second banana or even a lead banana, and he or she just couldn't couldn't hack it. So Right now, I'm trying to enjoy being getting a little bit of notoriety for a thing that I love, and all of the uh, you know folks that have been coming because like my PR people are lovely, but it's been very organic. Like people, and and also I don't know who to invite. Like I haven't like Elaine May and Eric Bogosian are the two people that I was like, oh, it'd be wonderful if I could get Elaine May and Eric. But and er- Elaine sent her regrets because she's uh, a bit on the older side and she's going to try to make it this run actually, and. Um, and I mean, I'd love for Lin Manuel Miranda to see it because I'm such a Lin fanboy, and I want to talk to him about Usher Love. But, uh, but you know, there it's been this. It's been a bit of a whirlwind. So I'm trying to reap the whirlwind. But right now, I don't know. I don't really know what I'm doing, and uh, I'm trying to, you know, gird myself for other things as well. I've got other projects, like you said. 
But sometimes, and, and some days it's the most wonderful thing in the world to be busy. And other days I feel completely overwhelmed. Some days it feels like I'm trying to take a sip of water from like a fire hose. You know, just like there's a, there's a lot going by and I'm trying to, trying to, to grab at it. But also like I am, you know, I am very happy to find myself not like wondering what it means that Stephen Colbert is going to do this thing in the 92nd Street Y. I just love Stephen Colbert. I have since I was 19 years old. A lot of the truth is I've always just been like a fan. I've always been a fan of a lot of stuff. And like I did comedy because I love comedy and I loved comedians and I wanted to spend time around comedians and be in comedy clubs and try the thing. And then I found I loved the thing. And so I stayed in the thing. Like, I'm still just like, this is just one fucking Make-A-Wish Foundation thing that's gotten out of hand. Like, I literally am living, uh, you know, I just do this because I want to be on stage in the same place as Birbiglia and Colin Quinn and Jari Seinfeld go on stage. And, and I actually, and I care about the quality of work because I'm standing on, you know, because I'm standing on the stage. So I guess, I guess I'm still like in the fan phase and maybe... And I've had some people who give really good advice about learning about how to like downshift in the career phase. Like um, Benj Pasek gives really good advice. He, like I said, he re- literally is like an older brother. And I have a wonderful um, agent that I trust very much. Who uh, you know, who I who I ask. But but for now, I'm trying to like rein in my natural impatience and just like do a good job on the show and enjoy like the 92nd Street Wise and the like fun podcasts that have like, you've had some pretty, I listened to Josh Molina when he was on the podcast. Like you've had great guests on this podcast. So like, I'm just trying to enjoy everything and do it as like good as I can. This is such a long answer. Why am I giving such long answers? I'm so irritating. Look, you're, there isn't a single person still listening. I am, I have talked for such a long time in such a self-aggrandizing way that not a single person is uh is listening but our, i mean if you made it this far thank you so much um i love your brain so much i th- and i said it in my intro i it's so hard to describe you know you call it comedy to me this was like one of the best plays i'd ever seen I don't know you, but I'm so proud of you. And uh, thank you. Thank that's you, so thank sweet. you for your show. And I love the podcast. Obviously, I haven't listened to every episode, but I listened to when you had the Ferryman Kids on. And uh, this is that must have been years ago. And yeah. I became aware of you after you did some Tree of Life stuff in Pittsburgh. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm, I am very lucky. And what's been really exciting about this is uh, I was a theater kid too. Like, I, I love. Um, I love Berbiglia and other smart people urge me to stop thinking too much about genre and borders mm-hmm. and just tell the story and just tell this exact. Oh my God. Yeah. We have a, we have a board. That's so funny that you say that. I'm going to show you this. We have this okay. board that uh, I'm literally carrying you through my dressing room. This is, um, oh, actually it's not on the board for yesterday, but we, we do five goals. I'm not sure if you can see the goals. We have five goals. And yesterday, and we do a different goal for every show. Let me see. It's yesterday's goals were get through the show because my voice was gone. Poison control, po- not poison control, poise and control. <laughs> Bring down your runtime because my runtime was getting up by like two, three minutes, and we brought it down yesterday by by two and a half minutes. 
pace quickly through the beginning and watch barnacles, which is when um, you start to accumulate like tags and things like that, like little jokes that don't quite do enough for your story. But one of the things that one of my favorite notes, and we use it on almost every show, we've done like 110 of these show notes. And I think my favorite is, um, and I think this is on like 93 of them. Uh, it's the story is the star. So the story is the star, but the, the, the point I was on my way to is that like, I am a theater kid. I, you know, would stage door, I would rush, I would second act, uh, when I, when I, when I could, and especially at NYU, I saw bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson like four times. Um, and so it's been really cool. All of the people that have been coming from, I'm really excited to be like part of this new community. Cause I was a big part of the comedy community or the comedy community is a big part of my life. And now it feels like there might be a world in which the theater community is a big part of my life. And I love the theater community uh, that I've been exposed to. So, you know, and you've had now a bunch of my friends have, on. So, yes, yeah. And now that, that, uh, I mean, you found us and we found you mm -hmm. and um, yeah, I mean, maybe that's, you know, selfishly, just the best thing that could have happened to no, me. Um, no, it's great. Wait, Alex, before I let you go, what's a little known fact about you that you can okay. share? What's a little known fact about me? Uh, and I know from previous episodes that you ask this every episode and I'm just like, what's a little known fact about me? Um, I have a birthmark on 60% of my body um, called a port wine stain that when I was a kid, I was convinced. I was like, oh my God, no one's ever going to kiss me. I never took my shirt off at a swimming pool. And then not a single woman I've ever dated has ever mentioned it or given a shit. So, I mean, it shows you what, uh, what self, what self image is like, but yeah, I don't think many people know that I've got a, a birthmark. It's on my like arm, chest, back and right leg, but it's a huge, it's a, it was a huge part of my like self image as a young person, but it's very much a little known fact about me. So there you go. Alex Edelman, thank you for being on the show. One more thing, I keep getting emails asking how to donate to the podcast. First of all, thank you in advance. You are the kindest humans. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. That is where you donate. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. This episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts social media intern is Sophia Rosenbaum. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.